one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This, I would go to say, is a very special episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is episode 427 for the week of Monday, August 27th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Rather uh, rather melancholy day today, Sawyer. Um, before uh, coming on, I went to look, took a look outside and... Um, and uh, went ahead and winked at the moon just one more time it's always a good idea and we'll talk about why in just a moment and welcome back mark ratterman hey i looked outside but we got clouds from tropical storm uh, isaac so no no star shine tonight well we're glad to have you back and we're sorry that is <laughs> that this is the occasion that we bring you back on at this point i I must digress from my normal, cheery self into a much more serious date. On August 25th, 2012, the world lost an exemplary human being, a pioneer and a hero. At the age of 82, Neil Armstrong passed away from complications related to a medical procedure. Armstrong first learned to fly at the age of 15 and was flying before he was driving. Armstrong flew missions in the Korean War and was even shot at. On top of being a fighter pilot, he was also a NASA test pilot, most famously piloting the X-15. Armstrong then went on to become an astronaut, first flying on board Gemini 8. This was also his first time cheating death while working as an astronaut, when a thruster malfunctioned and began spinning his spacecraft at a rate of one revolution per second, nearly causing Neil and his crewmate Dave Scott to black out. Armstrong was able to recover and then performed an emergency splashdown. He cheated death a second time while piloting a lunar landing test vehicle, ejecting a mere 200 feet above the ground when the controls ceased working on the craft. Armstrong, however, is most famously remembered for his role as commander of Apollo 11, where, along with Buzz Aldrin, he became the first man on the moon and uttered this famous phrase. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. He then went on to become a professor at the University of Cincinnati. The last years of his life were spent remaining mostly quiet and out of the public spotlight, making a few appearances, performing a small number of interviews, and eventually authorizing a biography titled First Man, written by James Hansen. Again, Armstrong was 82 and and will be missed. Where do I begin? You alluded to a few things that, uh, Sawyer, in 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 your uh, preamble. Uh, to this whole story. Uh, again, Armstrong was always a, a very cool character, and uh, 
just today, um, Buzz Aldrin was uh, being interviewed by uh, Laura Ingram on her radio program, and Buzz alluded to that as well. Not only um, he brought up the Gemini 8 ep- episode uh, where he, he kept his cool and impressed a lot of folks over at, uh, over at NASA, but also kept his cool during the landing. Uh, if you recall, if you recall, Eagle had about maybe they landed on the uh, on the basalt plane over on uh, on over there in the Sea of Tranquility, with only 15 seconds worth of fuel left in the tank, um, and that was because the auto, as Armstrong explained, the auto targeting was uh, taking them right into a, a football field sized crater, and and Armstrong had to grab the controls and basically tell the computer, no, 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 that's not where we need to go. We need to go over here. He found a place and a nice flat uh, flat area and landed. But he was always a very, very cool, cool character. Um, and he was also somewhat criticized because after he came back uh, from the Apollo 11 mission, he, he, was, he went back to being a very private individual. He was an extraordinarily reluctant hero. He fell into some criticism in, because of that, and I, I always thought that was kind of unfair. Um, you know, somebody is, should live his life the way, the way they want to. And if, Buzz, and if uh, Neil wanted to go ahead and, and be that private individual, then so be it. Um, I'm looking at an article here uh, from uh, the Christian Science Monitor, uh, dated August 25th. Um, it's entitled Neil Armstrong, Modest Man, Large Footprint in Time and Space. And I think the, the title is appropriate. But um, it's, it quotes Neil saying here that, quote, I am and ever will be a White Sox pocket protector, nerdy engineer. He said in a rep- public appearance in February 2000, cited by the Associated Press. And, he, and the quote goes on to say, quote, and I take substantial amount of pride in the accomplishments of my profession, close quote. He kind of came back out in 2010, if you recall, when the U.S. Congress was debating terminating the Constellation program. He felt that that wasn't exactly the right thing to do. And uh, he was an ardent supporter of that program and was trying to keep it going. And uh, unfortunately, it was not to be. And there's just so much more I could I could I could really really talk about about here with with the man. I mean, he I know he, he inspired a whole generation, including myself. I still remember being a little a little kid watching these ghostly figures hopping on on the surface of the moon as these pictures came down from the Sea of Tranquility. And I thought, you know, gee, what makes them so special that they can do that and I can't. And uh, unfortunately, I never got the chance to, to take that ultimate ride, but a lot of others were inspired by that and did. And uh, uh, if anything, Armstrong himself you know, kind of sort of alluded to the saying that he was always trying to inspire the next generation and um, always trying to uh, get young people to reach a little further than, than they normally could. So if I recall exactly, um, he was at the USS Intrepid not too long ago uh, with uh, Gene Cernan, and they were talking about a goodwill trip that they, they took to, uh, to see the troops over in Afghanistan, no? Yes, indeed, and that was where I had the pleasure of meeting him and shaking mm-hmm. hands with him, and there's actually a very funny story about that. In some 
odd way, as weird as this is, he actually helped me get a job with the Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum. <laughs> You're going to have to tell us this one. Yes, I know further explanation is needed. So this is bizarre, and it may seem like it's totally out of context, but I, I somewhat attribute it to him. I had found out that Neil Armstrong was going to be at the Intrepid. And my dad was a physical therapist, one of his patients. It, their relative was one of the head people at the museum. And I said I really wanted to go see. The chance to see Neil Armstrong, Gene Cernan, there were a couple of other astronauts who were scheduled. Uh, however, due to weather on the first scheduled day, Neil was the only one who I can recall was able to attend. And I really wanted to go, and they helped get me in. So I went to go see it, and while there, I met that person who was the president of the museum. And she fell in love with me, I fell in love with her, and from there, I became an employee of the Intrepid, starting off as a volunteer and now a consultant, <laughs> as bizarre as that is. But while there, I was able to shake hands with Neil and thank him for everything, and presented him with a pin from Challenger Centers for Space Science Education at the specific one where I work at. And it was just amazing how humble he was. And, you know, he just smiled and was very quiet and, you know, tried to stay away from all of the people, you know, hiding away in a secluded corner. And one thing that really struck me was during the question and answer period, since, like you were saying, this was a thing for the troops overseas, he didn't take any questions about Apollo 11. He didn't take any questions about his mission. For him, it was all about the troops. And... That says something, that you were the first person to walk on the moon, and you'd rather talk about the people serving the country overseas at an event for such thing. And I think that's that's a testament to him as a person. Yeah, I mean, sir, the other thing, too, is he – anytime he was asked about Apollo, he'd always deflect it from himself, and he would always turn it over to the, the 500,000 folks that worked on Apollo. And he would always deflect it. To those people that that were, were were building the spacecraft, that would build the rockets, that would test them to make sure that things were working, he would always give them credit for his place in history. You know, he, he just looked at himself as a member of the team. He didn't look at himself as as what how Gene Cernan characterized him, the leader of the team. He always looked at it at, at himself as, as as simply as the. Uh, uh, just a member of uh, of the squad that was trying to get us get us to the moon, and he he was always he just seemed to me anyway to be always that that humble individual. He was sort of like the reluctant hero. He really did not want that moniker at all. Actually, along those lines, with what you were just talking about, uh, Neil Armstrong performed an interview with CBS's program 60 Minutes back in 2005, and he mentioned about how it was not about him necessarily, but about all the people that worked on it. And we'll go ahead and play that. Do you recall how you came up with that? A small step for a man. What was the inspiration for it? Well, I thought, well, when I step off, I'm just going to be a little step. It's going to be a step from there down to there. But then I thought about all those 400,000 people that had given me the opportunity to make that step and thought, well, it's, it's, it's going to be a big something for all those folks and indeed a lot of others that even weren't even involved in the project. So it was a, a, a kind of a simple correlation of thoughts. 
And just um, if anybody is interested too, this was uh, from uh, from space. This is on uh, tonight's uh, spacefref uh, website at uh, spacefref.com. Uh, the family, if anybody's trying to go ahead and figure out what they if if they are so inclined uh, to send a, a tribute to uh, to to Neil Armstrong, and I am going to go ahead and read from this press release from the family. Um, quote. To everyone who has so graciously remembered Neil Armstrong, the outpouring of condolences and kind wishes from around the world overwhelms us, and we appreciate it more than words can express. Many have asked if a memorial has been designated. If anyone wishes to make a memorial in his name, we suggest in lieu of flowers, memorials be sent to one of these two worthy worthy organizations. Uh, The family notes, one, the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, Neil Armstrong New Frontiers Initiative, and the website there is www.cincinnatichildrens.org. And another uh, fund is the Telluride Foundation, uh, Neil Armstrong Scholarship Fund, and it gives the address, and you would go ahead and look up telluridefoundation.org, and Sawyer will go ahead and get those links up on the website. Yes, we will. What's amazing is how quiet they're keeping about it. He was a quiet man after he landed on the moon. He did not want to be a celebrity in the spotlight, and he tried his best to remain quiet, and I, I like how the family is trying to do the same thing. But there's one thing that the Armstrong family said that uh, was really, I think, an amazing thing that basically just sums up all about his life and what the family is doing. And that has to do with the quote that the family put out, and I will read that to you from when this happened. Quote, For those who may ask what they can do to honor Neil, we have a simple request. Honor his example of service, accomplishment, and modesty, and the next time you walk outside on a clear night and see the moon smiling down at you, think of Neil Armstrong and give him a wink. And that started the National Wink at the Moon Day. Yeah, I thought that was rather interesting. I mean, the the whole, I don't know if you guys were watching Twitter at all, um, August 25th, but it was, I mean, Wink at the Moon was was trending, I think it was number one at one point, and um, a lot of people were actually sharing their pictures, you know, of, you know, doing that, you know, just going ahead and and taking a shot at the moon and, and winking at them and posting them up on Twitter. I mean, I know I did that. Um and uh, I, d- I really didn't know about it, about uh, the whole thing, until um, I think it was – I'm trying to remember who, who was – I know the family had, had posted it out there. I think Space Ref had also posted it out there. Uh, Dr. Catherine Qualthrow had also posted it out there um, and a lot of other other individuals. But there was just some such an outpouring of that. I mean there were so many pictures of the moon. I mean everybody from – Taking a, a snapshot from their uh, their uh, you know smartphones to uh, to folks actually you know, having their telescopes out there and and taking some really really brilliant shots of what the moon looked like and and saying that that was their wink at the moon and I think it was kind of it was a very subtle tribute Sawyer but again it was a very very fitting one for a for a reluctant hero as uh, as Neil Armstrong was yes indeed. I'm going to run a question by you guys, all all the folks. Where were you guys when you found out the, about the news? 
I had just moved back into my college dorm for my second year at uh, college, or for those overseas listeners, university. And I had just taken a break from moving in. I had gone out to pick up my textbooks and to grab a bite to eat. And I had checked my phone, and that's when I saw an email with the news. And my draw was on the table. In my case, I was out uh, with my bride for a few hours that afternoon and heard a 30-second clip on the radio. And as it started, I thought, this doesn't sound like typical news this this sounds like a, uh, a they're about to start an obituary and sure enough that's that was what the, the point was and uh, haven't really caught that much news since but that's not unusual for me unfortunately and I, I guess my turn um, I was actually talking with a, with a friend of mine um, uh, a, uh, a young lady by the name of, name of uh, Anna Richards uh, she's over in the uh, She's over in Poland. We were on we were on a Skype call, and she sent me some. You know, she was saying, "Oh, I just want to say some condolences." And I was like, "Oh, well, what, what, what happened?" And she was the one who told me that Neil Armstrong had passed away, and I was absolutely stunned. It was about four o'clock in the after, about four four o'clock, four thirty in the afternoon, and I think my jaw hit the hit the hit the floor, and I'm like, "You're kidding!" I was. I was just absolutely in shock. It was just, you know, like somebody hit me over the head with a hammer or something. And, you know, it it, it was – it's just one of those moments that I think everybody's going to remember. I mean, everybody that was alive remembers, you know, when the, the news that Elvis passed away on uh, August 17th, uh, 1977. I think August 25th, 2012 is also going to be go- going down in history as like one of those days, sadly. Mark, I've been awfully silent. If you have any any thoughts of about Armstrong's life and and uh, and what you thought, uh, no thought in particular, other than let's pretend we're taking a test. Sawyer can probably uh, relate to this pretty well. Um, what's the rule of thumb when you're taking a, uh, a a test and you have a question that's a true false question? What's your rule of thumb as to how to handle handle that question to get the right answer never leave it blank <laughs> good and i don't uh, know i always heard your first instinct your oh, first yeah. thought that's was, what, anything always go with your first instincts and that yeah. has that's gotten me many questions wrong but that's probably not where you're going with this <laughs> no no that's fine so here's a true false question for you neil armstrong will largely be forgotten by the time man walks on the moon again True or false? Definitely unequivocally false. And I guess you know my thought is that that'll be true. I don't think so. Why is that? I'll, 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 why is that, Mark? I'm just interested in, in, in hearing that. I think 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, it'll be several you know, more generations of, of people go through uh, through their careers and through school, and I don't think it'll be that big of a uh, a name in history at that point. I don't know. I think Armstrong is probably going to be up there with with Columbus. And yeah. uh, in in history, yes, but as far as personal recollections and 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 people remembering and people having a feeling about about that event and about. Uh, 
he and Buzz Aldrin. I, I don't think that'll be there. I think it's going to take too long before we get back on the surface of the moon. Do you guys remember a little story I kind of told told you both, I think? Um, we were over at the uh, Air and Space Museum, and we were standing. I was standing in front of uh, uh, Lunar Module Number 2, which is, is, is displayed there. And uh, somebody had said, um, and and, and I'm, I, I kid you not, somebody had had basically, you know, leaning over, and I think he was talking to his significant other, and said, "What planet was it that they landed on again?" <laughs> so, um, Mark, um, I, uh, I, as much as I hate to say this, um, uh, unless the the Jersey Shore crowd wins out and 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 we lose, I think you're going to be right. Well, it's kind of tough when you consider that kind of a question in terms of the general population versus the people that have a, a, a strong interest in spaceflight and exploration. But I think um, I don't think the emotional connection will be there even for the people that have that interest and enthusiasm for spaceflight. I think that emotional connection is going to dwindle. I'm going to throw another question out to you, and, and I'm looking at an article um, that was just published today, um, and I think this is out of the Washington Post. Um, it asks, decades after Armstrong's moonwalk, can NASA's new robotic missions inspire? The the article basically goes ahead and explores um, you know, how Neil Armstrong and uh, the Apollo 11 mission in general inspired a generation and do you think that possibly uh what we're seeing today with you know mars science laboratory landing you know a few weeks ago and so far so good there um do you think that uh curiosity and and its ilk could go ahead and inspire the same way say armstrong and aldrin and and collins did Oh, I'll say absolutely. There will be inspiration that will come from from things that we can't even imagine right now. I mean, it, it may be what would be uh, considered a few decades ago to be not that glamorous. It could be robotic exploration. Um, and I think there will definitely be inspiration because uh, one of my coworkers, occasionally I hear tidbits about uh, his son that's in college and and very interested in uh, mechanical engineering i'm probably picking the wrong term of study but uh, he's gotten involved with uh, robotics type team participation events for with their college and he's highly interested in that and i remember him telling me that yeah my son went up to a competition with uh, half a dozen, a dozen other universities, and, and NASA was there, and blah, 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 and, and definitely excited. And the moon buggy competition that we hear about in, uh, I believe, up at Huntsville. Uh, again, a highly excited, motivated bunch of people. The, uh, the lunar regolith uh, event at Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center Again, they're, they max out at, at 50 applications or 50 teams applying, and they'll likely have more than that. So I think there'll be inspiration, without a doubt. Sir, what do you think? And do you think uh, Curiosity and itself can go ahead and inspire the same way Apollo 11 did, or, or almost to the same degree? 
it'll definitely inspire. I don't know if it's to the same degree, but at the same time, it's different generations. I mean, the generation of the Apollo era, I don't think they would have ever thought that, you know, a Mars rover would be an inspirational thing when you have humans landing on the moon. For this generation now, where people haven't seen a man land on the moon in going on 40 years now, there's not much inspiration anymore from Apollo 11. They see a page in a history book and a quote, and that's about it. So the next best thing that they have is they see a Mars rover, and they think, that's pretty cool. I want to do that, when they really don't know how much we actually did. So I think for this generation, yes. If it was a generation that had seen men walk on the moon, no. Well, speaking as as one of those, you know, who was just a small fry when that happened, but uh, remember seeing it, um, I would have to say that I'm thinking about all the hoopla surrounding Curiosity, and believe me, and we were, I mean, we were all sitting here, Sawyer, biting our nails. I mean, uh, watching Curiosity come down. Um, and and so far so good. The mission looks like it's 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 proceeding normally, but um, I, I I wondered too, and I think I I might have posted this on Twitter. Here we are celebrating a robotic mission landing. Yes, let's go ahead and celebrate it. Getting to Mars is tough, and and having our robotic arms and 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 our our eyes and ears on the surface of Mars is just an incredible achievement. But I wonder. How large the hoopla and how large the the amazement would have been if that was a manned mission and we had humans on the surface of Mars. And I kind of wonder how you know if, if that wonder would be how much of a notch would that wonder really be taken up? Here's something interesting. Then uh, I have a clip uh, going back to our story of Neil Armstrong that it was from. 1970. It was a interview that Neil Armstrong did in 1970 with the BBC. It was a BBC program titled The Sky at Night. And he actually was asked the question. And here is the question along with his response about if he thinks that we could maybe set up a base on the moon and something similar to that. There's one more thing I'd like to ask you. Uh... You're one of the very, very few people, I think, whose opinion on this is really worth having. In fact, there are only four of you. Do you think, from your knowledge of the moon, having been there, that it is going to be possible in the foreseeable future to set up scientific bases there on anything like a large scale? Oh, I'm quite certain that we'll have such bases uh, in our lifetime. Uh, somewhat like the Antarctic stations uh, and similar scientific outposts, continually manned. Although, uh, certainly, there's the problem of the environment, the vacuum, and the high and low temperatures of day and night. Still in all, in many ways, it's more hospitable than Antarctica might be. Uh, there are no storms, no snow, no high winds, no unpredictable weather uh, phenomena that we're yet uh, aware of. And the gravity is a very pleasant kind of place to work in, better than here on Earth. And uh, I, I think it would be quite quite a pleasant place to do scientific work and quite practical. There's inspiration. You would think that we would have people back on the moon, and without people back on the moon, that brings up the point that I raised in my comment answering your question. 
Yeah, I think too, and to get back to to, um, to Neil Armstrong again, I think too, Sawyer, that uh, I think it broke his heart a little bit too that we haven't really progressed any further. And to to hear him talk, and this was 1970, um, to hear him talk about you know the possibility of having uh, lunar bases, you know, a permanent lunar lunar station uh, there. Um, I, you know, again, that's what's kind of sort of what Constellation was supposed to be all about. And unfortunately, you know, due to budgetary constraints and things like that, it never really happened. And we lost that investment. Um, so, you know, again, is it possible? Yeah. Um, to, to go ahead and, and have something like that? Sure. And I, would that be an inspirational thing? Yeah, totally. In, you know, imagine going out there and 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 doing you know a, a geologic survey on the surface of the moon, and uh, mind-boggling. But um, you know, again, it it goes to show too that uh, we could have been doing a lot more, and unfortunately, we're not uh, for some for some reason. Either the public has decided that this is too expensive, or they just don't want to do it, or our you know, or, or our political elite are just saying that it's just not something that uh, we we think it's worthy. So um, again, we'll just have to um, see if uh, such a thing develops. I mean, uh, just today, I mean, uh, Buzz Aldrin himself has said that uh, going back to the moon may be a backward step. I mean, he doesn't say been there, done that, but he just says it, it might be a backward step. And the only thing he feels that um, if the United States were to go back to the moon, the only thing we'll find we'll find are Chinese. So see, he feels that the uh, that China has made the moon its target, um, and Mars is much more a a preferable target. But uh, I still think uh, Neil was right. I think we still can learn from the moon, and I think a lunar base would be a you know a good uh, a good start. I think this might be an interesting soundbite to end it on because you're saying, you know, when we go back to the moon, the one thing we might find is the Chinese. But Neil Armstrong, in a in one of his last interviews, this was, a I believe, a 2012 interview. It's 2011 or 2012. I apologize for not knowing which. Uh, with the Evo TV program, The Bottom Line, hosted by uh, CPA Australia CEO Alex Malley. And Neil Armstrong brings up a very interesting point with him about if they will go back to the moon, what they will find that without a doubt will debunk any conspiracy theories. It's because they don't bother him, and you'll hear why in just a second. People love conspiracy theories. Yeah. I mean, they are very attractive. Uh, but uh, it was never a concern to me because I know that uh, one day uh, somebody's going to go fly back up there and pick up that camera I left. Uh, and uh, so that'll be sure that... Mm. Well, look, I, I recall, and I think it was a fantastic response, uh, and that was because I'm, I'm, I'm hanging off every word you say, Neely, see, I remember. And, and it was around about the fact that 800,000 staff at NASA couldn't possibly keep a secret. <laughs> that's that's and, right. And knowing how people work, I think that's so compelling, yep. I can't yep. tell you. So there you go. That was a wonderful series too. Sorry, if anybody wants to take a look at that, we'll have to go ahead and put the find that uh, entire because it was it was a four parter, I believe. Right. I I can add a link to the website which has all four parts. 
Yeah, I mean that was a one. If if anybody hasn't hasn't looked at that, I, I would really really recommend they do that because that was just a grand series that uh, Australian television did. And uh, sorry, thanks for for sharing that one. But yeah, um, that was one of the things that um, you know you still have the uh, dare I say this the the I don't even want to mention the guy's name, but you have the, those types that just absolutely love conspiracy theories and. I think too. Um, I mean, LRO pretty much blew that all up, um, if I recall. Uh, you know, with uh, you know orbiting and and uh, taking shots of the the Apollo landing sites, and and not only that, there was a huge mis- MythBusters thing. If anybody's interested, look it up there, uh, where they basically blew up all the conspiracy theories on this. And I think the final one, the final nail in the coffin, really was the. Uh, um, was using the mirror. Uh, there, the um, there are several specialized mirrors. I believe there's one on the Apollo 15 landing site, and I believe there's one on, on Apollo 11. I think there might have been keys on all of the all, of all of the Apollo uh, landing sites. I'm not sure. Somebody needs to look that up for me. But there were reflective mirrors that you could go ahead and bounce lasers off of, and scientists use that to measure the distance between the moon and the Earth because it's it's fluctuating and the and the moon is drifting away from us. And um, uh, those those uh, mirrors that are that were left behind by the Apollo astronauts are still in use today. So that kind of really, really just you know blows up any type of uh, conspiracy theories. And I really, you know, <laughs> as as Armstrong himself said, they're fun, but they're you know they're they're tiresome and 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 people get you know I mean I don't know about you guys, but I get a little bit a bit annoyed by by that crowd. <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you, but you're going to have your believers and your disbelievers no matter what. I mean, there's conspiracy theories revolving anything and everything. But for those of us that do believe what is pretty much proven to be the truth of the lunar landings, they are still amazing feats of human achievement, and the men who did it are still amazing heroes, and we now only have eight of those 12 amazing heroes left with the loss now of Neil Armstrong, which is a huge loss to a nation and a mankind. Just not, not just a hero of, uh, of the United States, but a hero of humanity. So we'll continue on to a little bit happier news, as you were talking about before, Gene, with what seemed to be a pretty good segue. The Mars Science Laboratory, or Curiosity, which landed on Mars earlier this month, has successfully tested out its wheels. Last week it tested out its chemistry instrument and its laser, and now it's testing out its wheels, doing a little bit of driving, making a quick turnaround and driving in reverse, and therefore showing off that it will soon be ready to leave its Bradbury landing site, as it is named, and move onward to science. Again, talking about uh, people we've lost, um, Ray Bradbury. You know, Ray Bradbury. The where the area that uh, uh, Curiosity had landed was uh, called Bradbury Landing, um, and uh, I thought that was rather fitting. Uh, but yeah, so so far so good. I mean, the um, the rover I believe went out about 23 feet, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, did its uh, little 360, a little donut, to make sure that it uh, had uh, all of its maneuvering capabilities. And uh, uh, as uh, the uh, I forget exactly who it was that mentioned this, but uh, 
you want to go ahead and make a rover that will, well, rove. And they've proven that the thing will actually move. So um, I know uh, Pete Teisinger was uh, you know, really, really elated. Uh, for those of you who don't know who that is, Pete Teisinger is the, uh, the project manager for Curiosity. Uh, but he also was cautiously optimistic during the press conference. He said uh, that we've we've checked off a couple of checkboxes, but uh, we haven't checked off everything. He, that the the arm still needs to be tested, and a few other science instruments still need to be tested to make sure they're working. And so he's just taking this one step at a, at a time. But he's encouraged by uh, by by what he's seeing thus far. So so far so good. Everything seems to be going textbook on Curiosity right now. Right, the only failure so far was a backup wind sensor on board, and they're still working around that, and they're still getting all of the data that they wanted scientifically for that. Yeah, and that weather station is kind of an important story because it's the first time that we've really, really had a weather station on, on Mars since, oh, the Viking landers. So uh, Right, uh, yeah. when those stopped transmitting was the last time that we had any weather data from Mars, and now we once again have constant weather data, which is going to be really really amazing for scientists to take a look at and um i believe too eventually we may be able to go ahead and and see that weather data in real time i know um i, I know there was some talk about uh, getting a an application or, or something like that where where you could go ahead and punch it up and look up the weather on mars so um well that'd be kind of cool to, to see that but um uh, it, it again, Curiosity seems to be doing well. Um, its uh, uh, first run is actually in the opposite direction of where they want to go, but this little region, I believe, called Glenelg, is, is of some uh, scientific uh, interest, and they want to go ahead and take a look at that. And then after that, they're going to go ahead and, and start the uh, the climb up uh, Mount Sharp. Uh, so again, it's exciting times. We'll have to go ahead and see what. Uh, what Curiosity can tell us about its surroundings. Indeed. During the 16-minute test, by the way, the rover drove forward about 4.5 meters, turned 120 degrees in place, then backed up 2.5 meters, ending about 6 meters or about 20 feet away from its original landing spot. And according to the lead rover driver, Matt Heverly, he said in the LA Times, quote, that the soil is firm, didn't cause the rover to sink much, and should be great for moving around in, and we should have smooth sailing ahead of us. Okay, now we're going to move on to our last topic, which is also a lunar topic that we thought we had killed off. We, we had thought that we had ended this topic last week when we said that you can send us an email about anything else but this topic. And just, yeah, just when they... <laughs> And what do we get? Instead of zero, we get two in one week. <laughs> oh, boy. It's just like that line from Godfather 3. You know, just when they think I'm out, they pull me back in. So and just like ahead. from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, not dead yet. <laughs> exactly. Now, I will say one of these was sent to us before the release of our last episode. So one of these was before we sent out the message of stop sending us topics you know, about this topic. But... <laughs> What can we say? We're suckers for emails. We like reading them. So we're still going to continue with this topic, even though we still, you know, advise possibly 
you know, we would suggest maybe sending us something about any other topic. We love talking <laughs> about different things on this program. So feel free to send us anything else that you'd like to talk about. Any article you read, any story you see, any questions you have, feel free. But we continue for right now with our case of the Saturn V blueprints. The first one is from the original author of the first email, Rich Way, who started this whole thing. And here was his response to our comments in episode 425, which was the episode before last. I just finished listening to episode 425, and I'm both pleased and surprised at the amount of conversation created by my original email. Interjection, us as well. I had no horse in this race, but if what I'm hearing is accurate, it sounds to me that there were kennels of truth and decades rumors which spiraled out of control. For example, if Evan's email is correct, NASA's original Saturn blueprints were in fact destroyed, but after they were microfilmed. Employees aware of the former fact and not the latter could draw the wrong conclusion. On the other hand, the disassembly of functioning boosters to place them in museums rather than scrapyards is a distinction without a difference. When a government agency sends still useful mechanisms to a museum rather than to a mothball situation for potential future use, it is a political statement of no return. They are telling Congress, the taxpayers, and the contractors they are moving in a different direction, regardless of whether the mechanism involves Saturn boosters, space shuttles, or Iowa-class battleships, and regardless whether the decision makes financial sense. By the way, regarding Evan's email, I am curious as to the title of the book which discusses the supposed conspiracy. My conversation occurred right after the Challenger tragedy, which would have preceded the book's 1996 publication date. I'd like to see whether there was some overlap in the book's sources and those of my associate. Rich Way. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, after Apollo, I mean, there were, there were you know, pieces of limbs crumbling over at Bethpage, Long Island. Uh, and there, the, the one limb foot pad was being used as, and no kidding, a bird, a bird bath. I mean, the, the, or looked like a bird bath anyway. Um, the Charles Pellegrino's book, uh, Chariots for Apollo kind of sort of documents that. Um, but you know, again, I, I really, really find the whole, the whole, you know, Saturn five jihad theory to be nonsense. It's just me. Because it's it, NASA could could have destroyed the original blueprints either by by design or by accident. One or the other. Dumb things happen. Clerical errors happen, and things like that just go poof. Well, it's not like they taped over the original moon landing tapes. You know. You know. It, well, yeah. Again, <laughs> by sheerly by accident. Um, you know, nobody really thinks of any type of historic significance to anything. I mean, these are these are file clerks for God's sake. Um, but you know, I, I, I just, I, I really have a problem with, with, with the whole, again, the whole Saturn five jihad theory. Um, there was no real honest to God bludgeoning of the Saturn five. I don't think so. Because again, the, the contractors had whatever they, they had. So, you know, if you wanted to rebuild it, I mean, you could go ahead. I mean, as a as a seven year old, I could probably go ahead and write for some plans from the government government printing office at that time for a dollar and a quarter. So, you know, come on. Um, there was no I, I just I, I really find the whole thing hard to believe. 
And just to answer the question that was asked in the email, the book that was referenced in that article is the article again was a space.com article from the 13th of March 2000. It says, according to this, that the report was made on a claim by John Lewis in his 1996 book, Mining the Sky. And it says that he went looking for the Saturn V blueprints a few years ago and concluded, incredibly, they had been lost. That was the original reference point of that quote. So, letter number two, Sawyer. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Now, the letter that he was referencing was to one from Evan Burton. And he contacted us once again. (laughs) Now, this one, it goes a little bit more off of the conspiracy theory to what we were talking about last episode with the design of it. So this isn't necessarily the, you know, AM talk show material. This is more of what we were talking about with whether we use the boosters or not again. Continuing to enjoy the show, some comments. One. In my opinion, you were spot on regarding any rebuilding of the Saturn V. Yes, we could rebuild it, but some of the systems, for example the instrument unit, would be so outdated that they would need to be replaced by more up-to-date systems. The replacement of the original systems would mean that the stage, etc. would have to undergo requalification and testing. If you're going to have to do that, why not just simply take the proven quote-unquote concepts and use them for an upgraded modern design, which would have to undergo flight testing anyway. That is why we continue to use older designs, Atlas, Titan, Delta, Soyuz, Proton, etc., until there is a specific need for a larger launch vehicle. In the case of spacecraft itself, we see designers continuing to use the proven concepts of the Apollo Command Module, Orion, or sticking with existing designs, Soyuz and Shenzhou. 2. The future will be interesting to see what further designs take place. After all, Apollo was long gone, the shuttle was a 60s-70s design, Soyuz still flies today, and Shenzhou is just an upgraded Soyuz. Roll on the next great leap forward. Keep up the great work, Evan. Yeah, Evan, we we are looking at that. It's called three letters, SLS, the Space Launch System. And uh, again, it looks like, too, I'll have to go ahead and follow up with... uh, a uh, story that we're probably going to be talking about in great length on on the other program I do, um, that a company called Dianetics is actually looking at reincarnating the F1 engines. Um, again, they will be going ahead and u- rebuilding them with um, you know much more you know modern technology, lighter metals, lighter you know alloys, things like that. But essentially, the design would be almost the same. Uh, so, you know, again, the, the Saturn V lives on. Uh, to to uh, to add to your you know your conical shape, yeah, the guys that got it right because that's probably the shape that you're going to need to to uh, to have as you're making a, a reentry um, at you know lunar or even Mars speeds. And and if you take a look at the Dragon capsule that SpaceX has designed, you know, it could deal with that type of. Uh, um, those type of uh, speeds as well. It could probably deal with lunar velocities, and it could probably deal with uh, with Mars, Mars return velocities as well. So, you know, that, and I think that's why the Dragon is also based on that. And I think I don't know enough about the CST-100 to comment on it, but again, it also has that same conical shape that the Apollo uh, command module had. So I, I, I'm going under the pretext that it too could survive a 
um, you know, a reentry at that, uh, you know, from those those type of trajectories, or at least I'm I'm I, I can't don't quote me on that one because I I need to do my homework, but um, I think that might be the end game for that particular design as well. So hey, you know, Max Faget, who designed the the Apollo capsule, got it right. And that's that's why we're going back to it because you know again these are these are tried and true these are tried and true things if you're going to be returning from from those those type of trajectories so yeah I mean I, I agree with Evan in that in that case um, so you know again thanks for writing and uh, and uh, you know it's not that same topic in this instance but it is making a making a point that uh, perhaps uh, you know these folks were right. So, again, Evan, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to write. All right. Once again, both Rich and Evan, thank you so much for sending in your comments. Now, of course, you can always send in your comments to us as well. You can send it as a written letter or as an MP3 file to us at mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. You can also write it to us in a tweet by sending it to at TalkingSpace. Or you can post it to us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash talkingspace. And if this is going too fast for you, all of this is in the show notes, which can be seen on our website, talkingspaceonline.com, or if you are in iTunes, by clicking the small little I for more information. And with that, I believe that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Jim McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. And again, we've we've lost too many giants in the space world this year. And uh, my my condolences again to the uh, to the Armstrong family. Uh, a loss that uh, is going to take a while for uh, for the space community to absorb. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Radman. Good to be here. Good to be back. Hopefully next week we will return back to our regular format, our quote unquote new format now. But we figured this week it was appropriate to take a break and focus on the important story. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us as well. And hopefully you will join us next week as well as take a look up at the sky and give a wink at the moon. And with that, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. (laughs) 